welcome to week 11 of TMI about TSSI. <laughs> no, that's that's a great name for this series. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Refuting Marx's Inconsistency in the TSSI. 11? 11, you heard it. That is te- Lexi. Lexi, introduce yourself. Oh yeah, this is Lexi, Swampsai. It's 11. We've done this 11 times. 11 Saturdays. Thank you for hanging with us, because if you're hearing this, wow, you're a fucking nerd. Like us. Ah, Derek, introduce Uh, yourself. Hi, I'm Derek of of Swampside, Inside Zero Books, Emancipation. Are you Uh, claiming you're from Swampside now? Oh, not Swampside. Uh, You claiming it's Swampside? So it's Redness, Inside Zero Books. I visit Swampside a lot. Yes, um, you're a friend of the show. The, the weird thing is is all these groups kind of are incestuous, so I don't really know where they begin or end. Now, today we're going to be doing Chapter 9, which is the transformation problem. If it ain't broke, don't correct it. Okay, now, last week, last well, it was two weeks since our last episode, or maybe even three, we did the eighth chapter which went into the transformation problem and showed how if you're using the tssi that the transformation problem is not a problem and that you can transform between values and prices we just we were talking before we came online you know this was one of the big reasons why marxist economics kind of got ditched by economists because of this transformation problem so what we're doing is trying to show how you know Marx was right, and any of these critiques were wrong. So we're going to get a little bit more into detail today. We're going to talk about some critiques that we've seen before, most notably Borkovich's corrections, inverted commas. quotation marks, yeah. That's the one which led to the idea of the dual system and some of the more modern ideas around how to solve the problem, both the new interpretation and the single system interpretation and the actual, the daddy of it all, the TSSI, and show how it works. Let's just have a quick go of 9.1 here and see what he's saying here. So he basically goes into these selection of essays by Borkovich from 1906-07, where he put forth what he called his correction. The problem with this was that Borkovich basically applied simultaneous valuation and ended up coming up with a, a, a breakdown from transforming the prices that didn't correctly work. And he puts forward his solution. So will we just go ahead and have a, a look at this solution? Well, there's one line here in this introduction that I liked, which was, yet since his attempted proof of internal contradiction is invalid, the term correction is a misnomer. If Marx's solution is not an error, there's nothing to correct. So that's from last week. We showed how it's not an error. You can have simple reproduction working properly. Thus, the fact that Borkovich's conclusions differ from Marx's does not imply that the latter are incorrect. Borkovich is entitled to his theory of price determination but Marx is equally entitled to his. Let's have a look at these tables. Will we go and have a look? Who wants to have a look at 9.1? Sure, let's take a look at it, Tom. We got branch one, we got branch two, our output types here, means of production and consumer goods for each branch. But you see, they're gonna go back and forth because the inputs are measured in means of production all the time. The real wages are measured in consumer goods all the time but the outputs will be different. So let's just go over it. So table 9.1, branch one, 
branch one, the input for good one is 96 means of production. And the real wages are 10 consumer good. The output is 120 means of production. Living labor is eight labor hours. Branch two, we got the input of good one, which is 12 means of production. Uh, real wages is 20 consumer good. The output is 60 consumer good. So that's branch one, branch two. The labor hours in branch two are 16. The total inputs is 108 means of production, 30 consumer good, and living labor total was 24 labor hours. Okay, so this is him setting up his physical quantities. Let's go on and have a look at the actual value and the price systems that fall yeah, out of Borkovich one. If we look at table 9.2, there are four tables here. The first two are the ones we're interested in. So let's look at them ones first for this. So if we look at the, the top table, Lexi, that's nearly identical to the one that you've just actually read. Yeah. Just splitting mm -hmm. it into value terms. Right. I, I don't think we want to go in too much detail into the actual numbers here, but just talk about what's happened. If we look, we have a value system and we have a price system. Okay. Now, previously in chapter eight, when we did our transformation problem thing, the TSSI way, the way Marx would have said to do it, we saw that our totals held, our equality, system equalities, like total surplus value is going to be equal to total profit and all of those guys. But when we value things simultaneously, the way that Borkovich said, let's have a look. And we can quickly see, if we look at the two tables, the value one, the rate of profit is 30.4%, to be precise. And in the price system, it's 20%. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we, we've seen that it immediately cleaves the values differently. And if we look at the value per unit in the value system, Mm -hmm. It's one, and the price per unit has changed. One is 1.75, another is now 0.7. So basically what happens when we set these things to be evaluated simultaneously, all of these totalities break down, and we end up with a system that measures everything in values going off in one direction with its own value-rated profit and all these things going off in one direction. And at right angles, we got our price system going off in another direction. And it's got its own profit rates and essentially and prices. And near the twain should meet. And yeah? even when you do different, as shown by the weirder, and I don't understand exactly who they're talking about, other systems of prices right. go weird in the same way. Yeah. So let's have a look. He does another branch here. He takes up these guys who put up a, a different, slightly different solution to it called the Moskovska Vinternitz price system. One thing I think that's important here is that as far as I know, because in the book, Andrew does not really give us the actual ways of calculating these tables, bar in one footnote on chapter 5.8, he does it for one of the tables, but not in these, but that there are certain conditions that people equate but essentially there are different degrees of freedoms and some of the equalities that are held are done arbitrarily as a what is the word i'm looking for initial condition or something right it's something yeah. that's assumed so the degrees of freedom are reduced it's arbitrary what you are holding still you end up equating then your prices and everything given those say determinants and everything else comes off of them where in Marx, there are more degrees of freedom. We're not arbitrarily holding things equal. The idea being that Marx has this, you know, a few initial assumptions and then everything flows from there. You don't have to have as many arbitrary inputs or data points. 
Yeah, here we have the value system. I think the point of this page is that there's three price systems that could correspond to this value system. Yeah, and the, all of them have one variable that stays the same, but nothing else does. <laughs> right. Well, it, it's well, fascinating to me, for example, the pi, the pi over uh, CV is the same and all those tables, right? So that tells you something. Every other variable input changes from system to system. Yeah. Okay, so let's just read. read let's this. just read from here. Okay. Comparing the price and value systems, we see that they have very little in common. Total profits equals total surplus value by assumption. But Marx's other aggregate equalities are not preserved. Total price deviates from total value, and the price and value rates of profits aren't equal. Uh, B and his successors have portrayed these discrepancies as proof that Marx was wrong about the aggregate equalities. Many of them have also claimed that these discrepancies disprove Marx's theory that surplus value is, is a conclusive source of profit. None of them seem to have seriously considered that the, the idea that their failure to deduce Marx's conclusion is prima facie evidence that they misrepresented the terms of his solution. As was quick to note, his correction also implies the law of tangential fall of the rate of profit is incorrect, as Marx's rejection of Ricardo's claim that production conditions in luxury industries have no influences upon the economy-wide rate of profit. Marx and MB's results are incompatible in other respects as well. The source of these incompatibilities is that, as we saw in Chapter 5, simultaneous valuation makes technology and real wages the sole determinant of prices and profitability, and is therefore incompatible with Marx's theory that value is determined by labor time, because time isn't considered this at all, because it's simultaneous. Okay, breathe, Derek, breathe. You need to breathe. <sighs> so so let, let's have a look at what he was talking about here in these two tables, the table 9.2. By definition, the amount of profit, that's the 42, is going to be the same as the total surplus 42. Right. When we set that initial condition, when we set that assumption, and when we work through our simultaneous determined equations, all these other things pop out. Like up the top one, your total value is 180, total price below turns out is 252. So them two don't equate. Yeah. The equalities don't hold. Yeah, the and equalities I, don't hold. And then different equalities will hold in different places, right? So like you look at the exactly. next Exactly. So he did, he he assumed the sum of S and the sum of pi were the same. But then come, come along these people like uh, Mojkowska of Internets. So let's see what they actually assume. Other authors sought to vindicate Marx's theory with even greater finality by choosing a different, presumably better aggregate equality to preserve. Moskowska, 1929, was the first paper of this genre. She privileged the equality of total price and total value, as did Vinternitz. If we use this equality instead of the one that Borkiewicz assumed, but retain all of assumptions, we obtain the tab other table, 9.2 price system. So let's go up and have a little look. So they assumed, what exactly? They assumed that total price and total value. So let's have a look. So they're yeah, assuming fine. 180 here is the same, total P is the same as total W. Yeah, right. and when you do that, all other values in the equations obviously were different values because you're putting a different assumption on shit works out differently. We notice though that the profit rate here it's is twenty percent. Yeah, and I think that's because it's a physicalist. And then to be a bit of an asshole, <laughs> I'm only joking. Andrew decides, well, hey, let's come up with our own equality, a random shit. Yeah, and he says, let's consider the possible aggregate equality: the total capital advanced of the price system equals the total value W. Right. So he's just kind of coming up with a random ass one. And he'll show you, look, you can come up with a new and improved price system for that too. But the, the big point here is that these assumptions of saying total profit and total surplus value are the same. That's kind of like a restriction on things where that flows naturally from the other one. 
you know, the only thing that we have in, in our other one is that total value is total price and everything else falls out. And that total value and total price is kind of like a tautology. It's just like a description of kind of reality. Total value will equal total price in aggregate. And then everything else falls out and all the other, all the other things fall off that, as far as I am aware. Now, theft versus honest toil. Let's have a look here. This, this paragraph, Lexi, do you want to take this paragraph? Such solutions to the transformation problem, quote, had certain advantages. The advantages of theft over honest toil, as Burton Russell remarked in a similar context. It was much easier to assume some aggregate value price equality and declare that Marx was vindicated than to rethink the problem from the bottom up. As Samuelson stressed in 1971, however, none of these solutions actually vindicated Marx because none of them proved anything. Their aggregate equalities were simply imposed arbitrarily, not deduced, and in all other respects, the value and price systems of the dualistic solutions are simply different. So the otherwise villain Samuelson actually shows that these fixes are not fixes because they're kind of just numbers games. Like to me, Samuelson seems like he really understood what was going on. Yeah. I yeah. Agree, you know? I, I gotta I gotta like dig into that stuff. That's a th I think that's the way I'm really gonna like find some peace about all this is to look at every, just about everything Andrew references and to be like, did he represent this fairly? Are they wrong? <laughs> well, I mean, take I think Samuelson is right that those tables are just arbitrary yeah. math. And oh no, no, for sure. By the restrictions being arbitrary, you get certain conclusions every time, but nothing really seems to explain much. <laughs> like, yeah, it just becomes symbols pushing. Well, it gives me a lot of respect for Samuelson. It gives me a lot of respect for uh, this, this is going to be rough, but like Kleinman is constantly, you know, relying on basically people within their context that might have been thought of as pushing back on Marxism because th these kinds of interpretations were the dominant schools. So they probably right. read as, you know, to the Kleinman's right. Often read this way by, I mean, to be fair, by a lot of people who are like democratic socialists because they're like, oh, you can't agree with the bourgeois economics. Therefore, whatever right. weird crap we're talking about must be true. That's the that's the debate over um, real incomes versus wages and his yeah, and uh, failure of capital just production. That, but yeah, I mean, I've been told like, oh, whenever you guys start sounding like you agree with right wingers, you are inherently wrong by the nature of right wingers having said it. Imagine yeah. if Marx had have applied that logic. He I can't believe you denied Say's law. Say's law is what ensures humanistic dignity for all. Or I can't believe he gave Perhune shit for being not as good as the right wing economist who came before him. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a dumbass. It's a dumbass argument. Let, let's read this these paragraphs here. Note also that all three price systems are essentially the same. The price rate of profit in all cases is 20%, which is quite different from the value rate. All other relationships between the various price components, the ratio of profit to wages, the ratio of constant to variable capital, etc., are also the same. The only difference between the systems is that the figures in the Borkovich price system are all 40% greater, and the figures in the new and improved price system are all 20% greater, and that those of the Moskovska Vinternitz price system. Governments often alter their nation's economies in the same way, not at all, that is, when they change their currency unit. All simultaneous dual system solutions necessarily share these properties. They preserve only one of Marx's aggregate equalities and only by imposing it by fiat. None of them preserves the equality of the price and value rates of profit. They all arrive at exactly the same price rate of profit and they differ from one another only by a scale factor. Okay. 
basically they're all essentially the same thing with slightly different numbers with the same rate of profit and it's kind of like he's saying it's just multiplying each other's values by a certain constant That's yeah what so the corrections, yeah. the corrections are math games stop it it does look like the sticky tape stuff that you were talking about tom which is a, a good way to frame the idea of a degenerating research program needing more and more ad hoc kind yeah. of solutions what we want is algorithmic complexity we mm. want it squashed we want a reduction in algorithmic complexity. What yeah. we want is Occam's razor, but yeah, not so. too sharp. Not too sharp <laughs> that it gets rid of value. Right. That's actually a really good point is that, yeah, kind of anti-reductionist ethos, but sort of like allowing things to be reduced when necessary. I think that's like the sweet spot. My basis for understanding when I think systems go wrong is physics. I'm a distruster of brain and string theory because the, the algorithms get more and more complex, but they also become completely improvable. And some of the assumptions seem arbitrary just to make the math work. I feel like I'm seeing something similar with these post Bombokowit corrections to Marx. You're just seeing arbitrary fixes to make the math work, which making the system ever and ever more complex. And it doesn't really do anything. And if they're right, Marx is wrong. So why are you even doing this? Yeah, absolutely. I concur. But the one reason why, like we said that, but you can't just use price and not use value is that if you don't use value, I like a, let me put it this way, a scientific theory has to be as small as possible, but it has to explain the data. And if you don't have value, you can't explain the falling rate of profit. So while we, we need it, it needs to be sufficiently small, if you know what I mean, and sufficiently big. Yeah, but the field is uh, bad enough where some people don't see the falling rate of profit. <laughs> I know. Let's keep going anyway. we got the NI solution, 9.3. This is the NI solution, which was one of the first kind of halfway house solutions between the dual system that Borkovich inspired and the TSSI. And what these guys did, let's just read it. Let's see where we, where we go. They basically, I think, took the... The wages is always the price of wages in both tables they took instead of it being the value of wages in the value half and the price wages in the other half. Okay, so these finally emerged in the 1980s. Proponents of the NI, Dumanil and Foley, challenged the Borkovitsian, that's a nice word, interpretation of the value of variable capital. According to the NI, the variable capital value is not the value of the workers' means of subsistence, but the sum of value that workers actually received as wages. Thus, if workers are paid the value of their labor power, their wages depend upon prices, not the values of the means of subsistence they need in order to reproduce the labor power. Okay. So it's like a halfway house. It's kind of, it's kind of knitting a small element on these two branches that have diverged it's kind of knitting them slightly back together again and the yeah. thing that it's knitting together is the wages and it's putting the wages in its price when i studied economics in college the only marxists i was uh, exposed to were dumanil and sweezy and i wasn't like uh, mm. to be fair i wasn't like a an economics major i just took multiple classes in it yeah i think monopoly capital was like the standard textbook for Marxist economics. Well, and, that and Harvey, who isn't even an economist. But anyway, let's well, right. I meant when they were still doing math. So basically, this is like a half, yeah, a halfway house or what I would like to call a half-assed solution. 
Let, let's have a look just at the table of the Aeneas, and we can have a look what's going on like before. Is that okay, or does anybody want to read anything more? No, no, no. You can you can no, go to cool. tables. I, I I like your carpenter tendencies to have a fetish for tables. One of my many fetishes, let it be known. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Chief among them, the money fetish. No, that's not true. Patreon, motherfuckers. Patreon, no. And um, so here we have the table 9.3, which is the NI, so the new interpretation value and price systems. So much like before, so essentially we have our 36% profit here. Okay. And then we have our NI price system. It's 20% profit again. Observe. So that's interesting. I think this comes down to being the physicalist rate of profit. Yeah, which you can actually see. If we look here again, he's taken total surplus value to be total and equal to total profit. That's the equality that's preserved. And also the value, the 24 is equal to the price of value. Okay. But then everything else is calculated off those restrictions. Let's go to what he says here. Yeah. Proponents okay. of the NI have claimed that this later equality is an improved version of Marx's equality of total price and total value. If one accepts this claim, it is possible to conclude that the equalities among aggregates obtain in a different manner. Under the NI, but only if one ignores Marx's result, crucial to his law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. Thus, the aggregate price and the aggregate values of profit are equal. Like other solutions based on a dualistic interpretation of the constant capital, the NI solution fails to preserve this equality. Moreover, the NI value-added equality is imposed in a manner no less arbitrary than those other authors impose other aggregate equalities. It is true that the NI authors justified their choice, yet the other dual system theorists also justified their choice, often with equal validity. The equality of the total price and the total value, for instance, was surely regarded by Marx as fundamental result of his own solution. And I accept that as totally true, although I would like to know what some of the justifications were. But but still, yeah, ultimately it looks it ends up doing pretty much the same thing as the other systems. But it does keeps two of the price aggregates. Yeah, Isn't that right? Instead of one aggregates instead of one. By fiat. Yeah, but but it's still by fiat, and while the fiat has a reason, it's a like it's a deduction to what we think is most valuable. It's not; it doesn't emerge organically from the theory. Right, and you know, again, I'm not against you know making an assumption if it has some cash value benefits, but it would be even better if we kept those at a minimum and just had a bunch of cool stuff that flowed out of it. Let's go on to the SSSI solution. My God, they really come up with great names. The yeah <laughs> it sounds like a kind of a a disc name if you had a a, a friend called simon you call him so, yeah. sigh yeah so like, <laughs> like there's anarchists without adjectives is there marxism without initials <laughs> no no <laughs> you'd run out of time <laughs> i don't even get that i'm okay. such a loser anyway no, no, moving no. on that is not why you didn't get that <laughs> it's like a loser that joke is like a loser sniffer dog, is it? If you laugh, you know you're a loser. Is that what's going on? It's like if, if you laugh at that, you're left away. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so 9.4, we're really ripping through this guy. I must say this is my least favorite chapter in the whole book. But, yeah, this um, is pretty dense. Let's call it the triple SI. I like that. That is good. It's like a wrestler name. Let's do some DDTs here and then some MMTs. Now... So we have the SSI solution is essentially very, very similar to the TSSI. But the only thing is that it does value things simultaneously. The only difference between this in chapter two or three is that there's a table and you can see it. 
The SSI solution is true variable capital value. It's a sum of value that workers receive as wages, as the NI does. However, they also construe constant capital value in an analogous manner as a sum of value needed to acquire the means of production. Okay, so these are the same assumptions that the TSSI has. It's talking about what do you need to know? You need to know the, the price of the capital value and the price of the labor. Thus, the SSSIs do away entirely with the notion of a distinct value system in which the constant and variable capital depend on the values of inputs. As in Marx's own solution, there are only a single set of constant and variable capital figures. For this reason, all three of his price value equalities are preserved by the, the triple SI, at least in a formal sense. So this is, you know, these are good breakthroughs, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we shouldn't shit on them. You know, they're actually getting towards what it should be instead of some bullshitty Sweezy Borkovich Samuelson stuff. So yeah. things are getting there. When, when people are shitting on Richard Wolf, remember, he's part of this breakthrough. Okay, so let's have a look. So here is the single system prices one. And we see this is, it maintains the surplus value is the same as the profit the capital and the variable capital i presume are the same and the but the rate of profit we see over here is still 20 percent but the surplus value rate is 20 percent too so we do have the maintaining of this total surplus value rate of profit and total price rate of profit as the same and our total you see here our total w as value 288 and our total price is 288 and our total surplus and our total profit is 48, 48. So they're all held. The three equalities are there. Okay. But essentially what happens is they are just held by fiat. And other thing that happens is that the rate of profit that comes out of it is not a rate of profit that will drop in the long term. It's determined physically. So but, it's physicalist rate of profit, which thus is constant I don't know why it always ends up constant at 20%, but it always ends up constant at 20%. I think that's uh, because all of these ones are simultaneous. So the rate of profit will always be the physical rate of profit. Right. So that's why all of them have the same one, no matter what equalities you arbitrarily hold equal. If right. they'll always have the physical rate of profit determining what the rate of profit is. So it makes it, it, makes it look like there's still a difference between... Well, it, it, it does wonky things with time. It ends up killing the, the decline in the rate of profit because the physicalist rates of profits always end up roughly the same, which is kind of weird, but yeah. Lexi, you read this bit here. Do what you're told, Lexi. Come on. Yeah, yeah. The Democratic Centralists organization, <laughs> obviously. No, no, no. Straight down the line, Stalinist. Yeah. Well, that's what I meant. Thus, we have a curious paradox. The triple SI, Preserve Marx's aggregate equalities, yet... They imply that Marx's rate of profit is identical to the rate of profit of his physicalist critics. The voice is the voice of Marx, but the hands are the hands of Schraffa. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. It's a pretty good. It's a pretty good line. <laughs> How can this be? The answer is that because the triple SIs are simultaneous, their price rate of profit is physically determined. Their value rate of profit is then obtained by stipulating that it is equal to the price rate. And thus to the physical rate, or an analytically equivalent procedure is employed. Thus, although the aggregate equalities are preserved, the causal relationships differ markedly from those of Marx's theory. In the triple SIs, the physical rate of profit determines both the price rate and the value rate. 
In Marxist theory, the value rate of profit determines the price rate, and the physical rate plays no role at all. So, what I do like about the presentation in this chapter, even though it's turgid, is that you do see how like the mistakes of prior attempts to fix this would generate better and better attempts. Because in a way, like yes, the demon Shafra is behind. The I tell you, um, not only not only is he a demon, Derek, but he's a demon to pronounce, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah Shafra, right? Shafra. You're the only one who calls him Shaf Shafra or Shafra. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's desperate. Goddamn American. Anyway, uh, I know you are dyslexic, Derek. So I got to give you a fucking bit of a break. <laughs> and also, can't pronounce European languages that I don't speak very well. So, like the, What's the story. That's not a vice. It's a virtue. <laughs> He's trying to figure Ignorance. out what I'm talking Ignorance about. Is a virtue, said the Marxist. America. Anyway. The TSSI, I mean, the TSSI is interesting because in a mathematical sense, Kleinman says it comes out of going back to the assumptions of the SSI and trying to figure out what went wrong. Why does that end up being physicalist? And then, oh, yeah, time. Duh. I mean, and I know that sounds like a really stupid, silly reduction of the difference, but it, it's it's both that simple and that important. Can't model this without modeling time. Without yeah, that, that shouldn't be a controversial Let's have a look yeah. at table 9.5 where he shows the temporals so that T double S versus the triple S. So basically he shows here how all the same aggregates are preserved between you guys. So we got total surplus value on both is equal to total profit. We've got total value is equal to total price. The rate of surplus value is equal to the rate of profit. But you will see that when you work the math out, on one, now the prices end up becoming differently because there are different, basically, equations you're working out. And what ends up happening, though, not just the price is different, the ratios look quite yeah. different to me as well. The rate, of, the rate of profit also drops. The rate of profit also drops in the temporal system. So we see that the surplus rate of value is 10.5 and the other is 23. So one is determined by labor time hours and one is determined by physicalist surplus. What we have is the SS, triple S, did a pretty good job in trying to get there, but the key flaw was the simultaneous equations. But when we use the T double SI, we end up solving and replicating all of Marx's major points. The rate of profit is determined by labor time. You'll have a falling rate of profit. You got the surplus value and total profit are the same on value and prices. So it's the boss. Yeah, and so you could do the math. What, what's interesting about this chapter, though, even though it's turgid, and I want to admit that it is totally turgid, is that it made me more sympathetic to how the SSI, the triple SI emerged. Because at first I was like, who on earth would assume that you can't factor in time and figuring out a rate? Like, it's a rate. It happens over time, like in the definition. But when you look at how they got what they were responding to in the prior systems, you could see why they would have gotten that way to that point, even though it's wrong mm -hmm. and they should have just stuck with Marx in the beginning. Like it's interesting because even the TSSI in a way, yes, it's restating, it's restating Marx, but if all this stuff hadn't happened, you wouldn't have needed to state it this way. It make it makes sense when you're like, Oh, this TSSI is a way of going back to stating Marx in pure terms. But in response to a critique that insofar Tom, that I said, my fear was like, Oh, why didn't people in the forties come up with the TSSI? Well, it makes sense to me. They didn't need it. Like right. they were already doing this. Then the planning systems of 
things like Goss Plan or whatever they were called back in the day, they were using input output tables, labor time tables. Yeah. They were doing they this were. stuff. So that was it. Like this was how it was done. And then you had you had some like liberal economists trying to in the West trying to come up with ways to say, oh, this doesn't work. And that became dominant in the West. Unfortunately, from what I understand, it's actually dominant in the East too. The Chinese planners do not use input tables the same way Goss Plan did. Yeah, no, they don't. I don't know how much Goss Plan did that, but they did some of it. And definitely they don't use labor time input output tables in China or anything like that. So it's basically gone with the high bike. Like last week we had annual doing the tables for episode 10 and I was reading chapter nine uh, in volume three. He was like going, Christ almighty, this is exactly Marx was explicit. He said all this stuff. But people were reading volume three. You know, it was just obvious. It's just obvious. We have discounted one of the reasons why people don't talk about this, though, is because God's plan was a mess. But it wasn't a mess because how they were calculating things. It was a mess for other reasons. You could have the right equations, and if your inputs are shit because you're lying about them or because like everyone's afraid to be honest, then they won't work. But I think you know that simple explanation is ruled out out of hand because they're like, oh, look, the Soviet economy is a basket case. Therefore, all these basic accounting mechanisms that pretty much everybody uses must be false. Yeah, I don't think they use them in for any great amount, the the planning tables. I think they tried using them, but I think they gave up fairly quickly, is my oh, understanding yeah. of Goss Plan. They just they, went, they went to physical they went to they went to Simon a physicalist and then they went to weird cybernetic calculations in the fifties and sixties. So So what we're saying is that the Soviet Union would have been fine if it was only planned with temporal valuation. Is that what we're saying? No, I'm not, because I also no. said if you if you shoot people and have them lie to you about their inputs, your math is gonna be bad because your inputs are wrong. Like, <laughs> yeah. But also like if, if Go to the if we look at the work of Cockshot and that they use labor time tables. Yeah, yeah. You know. Cockshot, Cockshot's yeah. not Cockshot on the you know, I, I don't love Cockshot, but Cockshot on this point is actually pretty good. Linear algebra is your friend, people. You should learn how to do some math. So let's let's have a let's have a look at the critics' response to this dude. So it. essentially what we end up seeing here is that mostly people give some kind of begrudging respect. Like Leibman here says, he acknowledges that in TSSI examples of the transformation, profit rate equalization occurs within each period with the much adored aggregate qualities. Although Marx's simultaneous critics charge throughout all of the 20th century that his solution failed on mathematical grounds, Mongiovi has recently conceded the absence of arithmetical error in Marx's solution as interpreted by the TSSI. And Veneziani acknowledged that the TSSI obtains Marx's results in this and other cases, admits that the TSS approach corresponds to the original theory of Marx's in a way that others do not. And, and, he, and he's good about accounting for, hey, uh, I purposely quoted these authors out of context. Oh, yeah. Highly, oh, I, lo I love this because this is quite honest. This is quite, I, I like it when Andrew is like open about what he's doing. Uh, I've purposely quoted these authors out of context in order to highlight the facts that they have acknowledged. If one does not read their works with extreme care, it is easy to overlook these very brief acknowledgments, which are tucked away within texts that divert the discussion from the question of internal inconsistency, even to the point of making it seem that this is not what the transformation debate is about. A thorough response to these works would require several chapters, since their critiques of the TSSI are marred by a great many misinterpretations, 
misrepresentations, and mathematical and factual errors. Here, I must limit myself to discussing a few of the ways in which the above authors try to lessen the impact of their concessions by diverting readers' attention elsewhere. So I consider this part of this just sour grapes. I actually don't think this is particularly helpful. I know Tom would defend it, but like, I actually don't find, I did not get, this is part of why I find this chapter turgid. It's like, everybody admitted I was right. See? But I think the reason that he says this is driven home by when you read these papers, these papers really, a a lot of the time, I'm not saying all the time because I, you know, I'm like looking for some good objections to the TSSI, but a lot of these papers do try to distract you. And then make a comment like, well, I see the basic point, but look at this new thing I'm bringing up, which, you know, if you're in an argument and someone seeds your point and then brings up something else. (laughs) I've seen that with with people talking to Kleiman all the time. I mean, like, I remember even with David Harvey arguing with him, he did similar things, uh, much less substantive than I'm sure these will. But I also don't think, one... This assumes that Marxist debate is happening in the level of, of obscure economics journals, mostly in the 80s and 90s, which would have made sense in the 80s and 90s, but doesn't make sense now. Because I honestly have only heard of these people because because climate is complaining about them. These people responding to TSSI are kind of, I wouldn't say sub-tier academics because I don't know their academic credentials, but I have not heard of them until this book. Mostly it's a fairly prominent yeah, but mostly, mostly yeah. doesn't us again is mostly responding to TSSI or just coming up with an alternate interpretation. He is oh. responding. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's responding he, to the TSSI. Outside of a very obscure set of academics, a lot of the people Kleiman is mentioning, I don't think have had a lot of influence, right? Since he wrote, and I'm not saying, and I don't know enough about the the economic milieu's about the 80s and 90s to in early early aughts to know if they had a lot of influence then. Like I just don't know. No, you're right. We're talking about like, you know, journal, like journal academics, people that are, have an audience through a specific like set of journals. I think I like Leibman, for instance, I, I found out because he was in some debates about historical materialism, I think in the journal historical materialism. Right. Right. I'm just saying, like, I said that this seems like important, but also kind of sour grapesy. And I wanted to go to the more substance stuff, which is the appendix on Mosley. I like him bitching a little bit because he like talks about how the, it's just the bait and switch arguments. You know what I mean? By the time yeah. you actually nail down the TSSI and you say, look, this is, it does work. And then he goes, yeah, yeah. But like, you know, value, value is kind of absurd anyway. You know what I mean? You know what these guys, you, you, bait and switch is like, you know, somebody saying, oh, look, an eagle, you know, and you're like, fuck. <laughs> well, I mean, they also like marginalists were never going to accept value anyhow. Right. Like they don't even think it's a valid category. I think, Derek, as well, that a lot of these guys are like most academics in any field are not known. And also, I think a lot of these guys aren't even Marxists. I think a lot of them are Shrafians, you know, so yeah. they will they will yeah. never admit anything. But, uh, yeah, yeah, stop. but I mean, t- to a to a larger degree, though, like like when we go through this book and you're talking to people who are not involved in a, a very specific subsect of academic Marxism. They've not heard of even Shrafra, much less. And Shrafra is important. A lot of the later, like quasi defenses of it and all that. But what's interesting to me, and what I think is telling, where I think you have a point, Tom, is a lot of these things were, are assumed in people who are more famous. So, for example, we've talked about the analytic Marxist 
mm-hmm. or David Harvey or, or Richard Wolf, or you know, Richard Wolf is part of and assumes SSSI. Um, Harvey, I don't really know what he assumes, but he sounds a lot like like he just doesn't want to deal with the client rate of profit, so he's either SSSI or NI. But he, I don't even think he knows. Like he knows that he's not a value theorist, right? And he he doesn't ever explicitly came out and said which which non-value theory theory that he actually supports, right? Yeah, exactly. Wolf, Wolf is too good for this category. Wolf didn't just assume SSI; he like helped. No, I said he's part of it. development. You know, I've listened to Wolf and I've read a lot of his books, and I don't hate him. I really don't. I think this is, and he's a really nice man. He's a very nice person. But some of his economic claims are real hard to prove. Listen, I'm with I'm with you there. And again, he's a you know post structuralist economist. Yeah, I mean, one of the things he kept on talking about when I was listening to his speech is how the economy is really bad right now. And I'm like, are you seriously saying this at this moment? Like, he just tactically that sounds dumb. It's still true for people in like lower income brackets and that are precarious for people with with lower income brackets so just say that don't try to make it sound like on its final crisis mode when it's it's gdp is not and gdp is a bad measurement don't get me wrong but the gdp is actually probably the best it's been in forever to be fair i've you know definitely heard a bunch of non-marxist not even liberal like biography time i briefly you know did some like rideshare work in san francisco mm-hmm. and drove around a bunch of finance people and drove around like finance people to work at tech companies and like 75 percent of them i'd say are like waiting for the big the big one <laughs> well they should be because they they actually understand that their their entire industries are are, are actually held right. up by a mixture of state and really irra- like seemingly irrational venture capital preposterous over bubbling yeah like, that has no way of profiting ever and i mean it's part of the business model is not the profit right. for a certain amount of time i mean th- this is another thing that's interesting to me that like tech entrepreneurs actually kind of get the declining rate of profits because their profits yes. are not profits and they all know it. It's it's all rentier bullshit. <laughs> right. Let's keep going. We're way off topic. Okay, so we get to this an ad hoc appendix where he takes on two guys, two other solutions for some reason. One of them is the Loranger solution. Now, Loranger succeeds in deriving all three of Marx's aggregate qualities, and his price rate or profit is determined by not only equal to the value rate. Yet these results are meaningless because other results which emerge along with them are impossible. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, he ends up with like negative wages and stuff and like positive in the value system, but negative in the price system. So look at it here. Yeah, here's table (laughs) 9.6. So we end up, everything is like the total surplus is the same as total profit. Total value is the same as total price. But then when we actually work it all out, people work negative hours. So people went, I don't know what it even implies, yeah. people went and smashed windows, you know, they're going to so, 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 the I mean, factory and set shit on fire and they ended up with a yeah. proper rate. Like that's the level of it. So let's not give it any more uh, than but, that. So again, this is something I, ne- I need to see for myself. Like, I, listen, I'm, I obviously respect Kleiman enough to like pay attention to his book for with this amount of loving detail, but this is so absurd. I must know. <laughs> But the this, equations yeah. are there. Look, the equations. He actually gives no, the equations. I, 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 this one. The I want to hear how he derived this. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, how did he get there and publish this? <laughs> and if this is the case, like, what no, were people no. like around him? Were they like, oh my God, you're a genius? This is, this <laughs> no, is phenomenal. 
what he would have done is picked values that wouldn't have given a ridiculous results. So we could create all the tables and show how it works. But right. then if you just change the prices, numbers, numbers it goes falls apart. Crazy. Yeah, that's what's happening there. All right. All right. Let's okay, let's move on to Mosley. Let's go to Mosley because Mosley's more interesting and also I know who he is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, so Mosley's an American for, for you Yanks, goddamn Yanks, with their intellectual imperialism. Here we go. Now. Yeah. Anglo-Saxon, theorialist barbarism. You know, a lot of us are Irish, though. I'm just saying. You're, you're a bit of everything. You're like one of those people in one of those DNA test programs and it comes back from every single continent. <laughs> a friend of mine, a friend of mine, she did one. She thought that she she's English, but she her name was Singer. And she thought that she was, that the family was originally from Russian Jew, Jewry, that they were Jewish. Mm-hmm. And she got a, a, one of these DNA tests and it came back saying that she was like 93% Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> she was really oh, nice. There's been a lot of Jews created and uncreated by those tests. <laughs> yeah really my missus did one her parents are from nevis the island in the caribbean and it came back that she was i think seven percent irish <laughs> so I, like 40 percent um, north african but i don't even know what that means like yeah like north african could just mean like because right. like if you if you actually cycle around if you were to drive a car from like tunisia all the way around to like spain you don't really notice people looking that much No, different. they don't look that it, They're like Latins in that way, where everybody's just kind of like, everybody's so inter, intermarried and interbred anyway, that like, it's all kind of brown. The Roman Empire was as much in Africa as it was yeah. in Europe, you know? Yeah. So the yeah. idea that like, you know, these people are African or different than Romans, is just like kind of, it's bullshit. Anyway, let's it's keep funny. going. Yeah, so Mosley, we we talked about Mosley earlier, and Mosley, this is when I had my moment of, what do they call it, um, what does Woolly Allen call it? Was it homosexual pangs or something? Homosexual pangs? <laughs> I think it was like where, where people are like, suddenly get this shock. <laughs> Am I actually gay? You know, this, is, this is my moment of that when it comes to my theory. Just give in, Tom. just relax so the idea so that you should value your capital should be revalued at the replacement cost at the current cost so this was the idea i said before and it's on the island and i was reading the book and i was like god andrew's totally fucking wrong mosley was the one kind of simultaneous who made an argument to me that made sense was that like we should be valuing the capital at, at the current cost but that doesn't make any sense when you think about it more. So this is my this is Andrew trying to get in at Mosley's that idea, kind of seeing what the implications are from it. Essentially, what Andrew will basically say that when you make that assumption, you're a simultaneist and then you're a physicalist, and you might as well be a Schraffian. That's the gist. Mosley is like reinventing Schraffianism by accident. From what I understand, like Mosley accepted Kleiman's refutation of the Okishio theorem. And basically proposes like an alternative measure. Just Kleiman thinks it's just all the same shit anyway. Yeah, Kleiman thinks that once you once you the replacement cost does end up making you a simultaneous because you have because you value inputs simultaneously structurally by doing it, even though the reason Mosley gets for it isn't insane. And I don't want to read it after this because because frankly, after we get through this book, I'm gonna to need to talk about another element of Marxism for a while. <laughs> like, don't make me go back into monetary theory immediately, Lexi. I've been oh. doing this for like a year. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll come back. We'll come back. 
So let, let's just read the deep bits here because this is the essential. This is the argument rolled up. Okay, okay in these yeah. these bits. Although he claims that his interpretation is non-simultaneist because its value magnitudes are determined prior to its price magnitudes, the constant capital that is taken as given and transferred to the price of the final product is the current replacement cost of the existing means of production. Thus, the sum of value transferred is not the actual given cost of the means of production when they entered into production process. But what would it cost to replace them when the output is sold? In other words, the constant capital is retroactively revalued at post-production prices, as in every other simultaneous model. Mosley maintains that, the, that his interpretation nonetheless takes the constant capital value of given. When prices of means of production change during the production period, constant capital continues to be taken as given, but the precise magnitude of constant capital that is taken as given changes as a result of the change of the value of the means of production. The fact that the magnitude of constant capital may change does not imply that the constant capital cannot be taken as given in the determination of output prices. Well, that is utter gibberish, if you ask me. Let's see what Andrew says. But of course, this fact implies exactly what it says it does not. If Mosley's salary is given by contract at the start of the year, but his employer pays him only half that amount during the year, only the precise magnitude of his salary changes and not the word salary does this mean that his employer has not violated its given contractual obligation? Yeah. You know, it's just word salad. It's word salad. Basically, Mosley doesn't think he's being a simultaneous, but he has to be, and his justification for for how it doesn't work doesn't make any sense. Yeah, he's playing he's playing word games. That's just pure word games. So is, um, is this so that's what Andrew and uh and Fred are, had gone back and forth about? It seems that, like it. Because I, I'm not gonna lie, I like I like some of Mosley's work, but I, back, I yeah. even though I own his book on money, I've not read it. Andrew goes into another table, and this was like a weird case where Mosley came up with a example to show that he was right. But actually, when you ended up doing the math and worked it through, it made no sense. I actually haven't read this last page in about three or four months. I think this is one where he's showing that the rate of profit drops. This is Mosley's interpretation of how the rate of profit drops. But actually, mm. when you get into it, it doesn't work at all. It ends up only working in the way that the physicalist works. Physicalist exactly. Work. Yeah. So and then if we if we get to it here, thus Mosley's rate of profit is determined by the same technological and real wage coefficients that determine all other simultaneous rate of profit in exactly the same manner, that he expresses his rate of profit as the ratio of surplus value to capital value advanced instead of a rate of physical coefficients makes no difference it is all value mm. form and no value substance okay there's no point in getting into the calculations there because i have read them and, it, and andrew's calculations absolutely make sense but in, in essence what he's saying is here that that mosley is determining his rate of profit by comparing the value rates but essentially they're determined by the actual the physical rates when you value simultaneously and so it's well, it's and, all and bullshit. Beca and, beca and because eh. the reason why it's contentious is use of replacement parts ends up making it a simultaneous Re replacement cost. Yeah, yeah, replacement cost. As your as your derivative factor ends up making a simultaneous argument anyway. That's really what comes down because because Andrew shows through the al and it's algebra. It's not hard. Like I could follow it that when you plug in those numbers it ends up being nearly identical to the to the physicalist rate of profit assumptions and this is one of the times where andrew does actually painstakingly break down the math and shows you all parts of it including all the sub equations so 
like it works. See, you can look at it if you want to check it yourself. Regardless, I think this is just a situation where they disagree about the description of Mosley's work. <laughs> what is simultaneous or not? Andrew's mathematical description, as far as it is presented right here, holds. Um, Look, if you do value, if you do repulsed, it's the exact same mathematically as saying simultaneous. That's just what it is. There's no mathematical difference between the two. And if right. you do what he's saying, replacement cause, you'll end up with a physicalist rate of profit. It's not math. It's just pure logic. Like if, if you're saying replacement right. cost, it means you're valuing stuff constantly at the current state of right, value, right. not at what mm. it was in time. I mean, that just makes sense. Okay. Well, look, there we're after getting through. Oh my God. Chapter nine is being complete. That was, that was my least favorite chapter. I don't um, know. Chapter 10 is pretty hard. <laughs> Oh, the fundamental Marxian theorem? You mean where they try to recreate the exploitation theory of profit without the TSSI and that kind of thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't mind that chapter. It wasn't, that wasn't the fault of of uh, Andrew why that why that chapter hurt. No, no. He, he, does a very, he does a very good job of making an abstruse debate much clearer. Yeah. Dudes and dudettes and everybody, thanks very much for joining us for this episode. And we will speak next week anew. Next week, we've got a tough one. It's going to be mathematical as a motherfucker. So long.